Welcome to episode 55 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, the I've just got back from traveling edition. Since my last episode, I've been to Beverly Hills and Newport Beach in California, to Miami here in Florida, and to Washington, D.C., up in the frozen tundra area in the Northeast. That's right, I saw snow, which was a treat of sorts, as it's been outlawed here in the Sunshine State. Before I get to my guest, I want to tell you about David Barnson's new book, Full-Time, Work and the Meaning of Life. It is deep into the ethos of National Review that work is a bedrock in a flourishing society and that work is a pivotal component in the God-given dignity of every person. Economist and financial manager David Barnson, our friend and colleague, has taken this message to its full potential with his brand new book, Full-Time Work and the Meaning of Life. Whether it be in public policy, in the culture, or even in the church, too often work is seen as a necessary evil and not the universal blessing that it is. Well, David argues in his brand new book for the economic, theological, and ontological significance of work, suggesting that it is core to our identity and that the fastest way to a failed state will be to continue in this low regard for work that ignores our God-given capacity for productivity. David does not shy away from defending work as a therapeutic, cathartic vehicle for dealing with challenging circumstances in life, And he ultimately argues that the other things we value in a well-ordered life, marriage, children, community worship, are all enhanced when we properly prioritize and centralize work. It is not a book on work that you have ever read, but you should. And if you want to, you can get David Barnson's full-time Work and the Meaning of Life today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever fine books are sold. That's full-time Work and the Meaning of Life and you can check it out at fulltimebook.com. My guest today is Gareth Russell, the author of a new book on Hampton Court Palace. Gareth Russell, welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast for the third time. Oh, Charles, thank you so much. It is a big honor to be a three-repeat guest. The first. The first. Repeat guest. The first and only. That is going to go on my business card and in my obituary. (laughs) Hopefully with a long gap between them. (laughs) So one of the reasons, I suppose, that you are my first three-peat guest is that you write about a whole bunch of different things and have written about a whole bunch of different things and have been invited onto this podcast to speak about a whole bunch of different things. We did the one on the Queen Mother. Yep. We did the one on the Titanic. And today we're going to talk about your new book, which is about Hampton Court Palace. So let me become a parody of myself. Sure. And start by asking, what is Hampton Court Palace? 
Well, as you know, Charles, from your time there, where exactly the centre of London is, is a nebulous concept, but it is a palace that is about 12, 15 or 19 miles outside the centre of London. It is located on the border of Middlesex and Surrey, two English counties, and it is a huge, I mean, really kind of village-sized palace that is located on the banks of the river, and it has been a very prominent British royal residence for centuries. It it sort of was the Buckingham Palace before Buckingham Palace. It was very much associated with the royals in that way. But it also has a a much longer history. So before it came into the royal family's possession in the 1520s, it had been owned by warrior monks, which is the most uniquely medieval crossover brand. It was a series of an order of warrior monks called the Order of the Knights Hospitality hospitalier and they had guarded the pilgrimage routes to the holy land and they were given an area of land in england and they founded a manor there that was sort of a base for the order so there's a very very long history there and even before them there was there was a villa there in the days of roman britain so it's been a piece of prime real estate for thousands of years and a royal palace for hundreds of years and it is Luckily for me, and one of the reasons I chose to write about it, it is a hodgepodge of architectural styles. As you approach it now, it's a museum. You would see the front is very much red brick, 16th century Tudor. But at the back, it looks like a, an English middle-fingered repost to Versailles. It's a sort of grand, sprawling Baroque edifice. So there's lots of different areas and periods and styles that coexist at Hampton Court, which makes it almost like an arc of British history. When I was reading this book, I was trying to think how to do this interview because there's so much. It's not just that there is a hodgepodge of architectural styles. There's a hodgepodge of people who lived there. It has been the venue of a hodgepodge of different moments. It has had a hodgepodge of purposes. So perhaps... This is the best question to start off with. Who made it what it is now? So it it was it really was made into a palace from a manor house by a 16th century very grand living politician called Cardinal Thomas Woolsey who was the last really great Catholic English statesman and he was Henry VIII's chief minister and he rented Hampton Court from the monks who owned it and he had a very generous lease agreement whereby he could make any changes he wanted and Woolsey was kind of a political peacock. He had a vast amount of revenue as the Archbishop of York but he also was the Lord Chancellor so he was the most powerful church figure in English life after the Pope really because he was also papal legate and he was the most influential secular figure after the king so a vast amount of money is coming towards him and he also doesn't have any legitimate children because of the vows of celibacy there are two illegitimate children so the celibacy requirement is more binding legally with him than it is morally (laughs) but it but it means that he has no he's not a dynastic figure in the way aristocrats are and aristocrats yes they do build very grand houses but they also have to be conscious of the continuity of their family and leaving a good pot of money to the next generation Woolsey doesn't have that concern and so he can throw 
a really staggering amount of money at turning his manor by the river into a palace by the river. And it's to him that you owe the, the sort of that grand gatehouse and the style and the look of Hampton Court. The size of Hampton Court, however, is a consequence of ultimately his great nemesis, Anne Boleyn, who became Henry VIII's second wife in the 1530s. And when Wolsey fell from royal favour and was shunted off into the political wilderness, Anne Boleyn became the first queen to live at Hampton Court when it had been seized from the church and become part of the royal property portfolio around the time England breaks with the Catholic Church. And because it had previously been the residence of a legally confirmed bachelor, there aren't sufficient quarters for women, particularly the Queen. And so under Anne's watchful eye, the palace gets a sort of 50% increase in size to provide wings that will house the Queen, her ladies-in-waiting, and that associated side of the royal household. And Anne Boleyn comes from her Irish family, the Earls of Ormond, have just built a huge basically palace in southern ireland and she's also grown up in france so there's a lot of palace building during the renaissance so she has very clear ideas of what grand buildings should look like so really by the time anne boleyn is executed on her husband's orders in 1536 between her and cardinal wolsey they have established hampton court for the grandeur and the size that it's now known for and henry the eighth moves in henry the eighth moves in now he is um he is as comfortable spending money as his second wife is, but he is not as comfortable with her attention to detail, her patience, or indeed real interest in the arts. So Henry VIII has a slightly unfortunate tendency to cobble things together because he needs them and wants them. So a, a council chamber will go on here, a bowling alley will be put somewhere where it's not, you know, really doesn't aesthetically fit. But Henry VIII, again, continues this policy of spending a lot of money, and some of his marital mishaps happen at Hampton Court. So the the premise of the book is that it's a different room with a different decade from a different person who lived there as you run through the centuries. And two of the incidents that happened during Henry VIII's time there are his third wife, Jane Seymour, dies giving birth to their son there in 1537, and that chapter is told from the point of view of one of her ladies-in-waiting. And his fifth wife, Catherine Howard, her downfall begins there. She is accused of sexual impropriety by a servant. And there's then a search of the staff's chambers at Hampton Court that uncovers a love letter between the Queen and a very dishy but extremely badly behaved gentleman of the court called Thomas Culpepper, and that eventually leads to both their executions. So those are some of the incidents that play out at Hampton Court. And as much as I think the architecture is fascinating, I'm not an architectural historian. So very much it, it, it was to focus on, as you say, the people who have lived there over the centuries. So not to digress too much, but the allegations against Catherine Howard are fake, right? So the allegations against Anne Boleyn are definitely fake or pretty definitely fake, sorry, I should say. And the allegations against Catherine Howard are trickier. With Catherine, what they what they can't prove is that she's committed adultery with Culpepper. There is this letter, and there are things that the two of them admit to that don't exactly suggest pious intent, like meeting in her bathroom in the middle of the night. But what's quite interesting is that 
Culpepper makes this astonishing claim in his interrogation, where he says, we hadn't slept together yet. And that does seem to be what the counsellors reached the conclusion on. So why would he say that? He knows if he says that, he's going to be executed. Yeah, it's it, well, Charles, you literally, in your reaction there, are Edward Seymour, Earl of Hartford, who was one of the counsellors questioning him. I always wondered if I would be. <laughs> he, he just, he was a, there was a, a deathly pause, and he said, um, that's already too much. And he couldn't believe that Culpepper had said this, something so, <laughs> so unbelievably uh, suicidally stupid. I think part of what Culpepper might have been doing is that he was hoping that by being completely honest, he could convince them that the deed itself had not been done. But the problem was that after the break with the Catholic Church, in order to stifle populist opposition to his policies, Henry VIII embarked upon a massive expansion of the treason laws. And he included something called misprecision of treason, which was essentially, if you thought it, that was enough. And so for Culpepper to say, I hoped to have sex with the Queen, that was sufficient to say that was treasonous intent. So they, she's often, Catherine's often described as a queen executed for adultery. She wasn't. They get her on that her actions credibly implied intent, which is a very convoluted way to get someone to the scaffold. But it's not, yeah, Anne Boleyn, it, it's, it's a political coup against her. Catherine, you are left a bit like Edward Seymour, staring in horror at what on earth Thomas Culpepper thought he was doing. That's a standard that would have condemned quite a lot of men throughout history to death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think that was part of what the counselors were sort of thinking. Like, surely you have practice keeping these feelings to yourself. So it was, uh, yeah. And her, uh, you know, Catherine's ghost is still said to haunt one of the the galleries at Hampton Court because it was fourteen day period in the winter of 1541, where this all plays out at Hampton Court. So tell me about that, because certain people over the years tried to get in contact with these ghosts, with the seance. Yes, there was a, a story I only found out afterwards that I was, thought was so entertaining. So in the 19th century, various parts of the palace was turned into sort of subdivided apartments for retired blue bloods and palace servants who couldn't afford rent anywhere else. And sort of like a glorified retirement home, really. And one of them, Lady Baden-Powell, who was the widow of the founder of the Scouts, was a convinced spiritualist and used to regularly host seances. And one, Allegedly, the spirit of Anne Boleyn herself came through and told Lady Baden-Powell and her, her circle of spiritualists around the table that she absolutely loathed the way Lady Baden-Powell had decorated the rooms. And whilst I don't believe in seances... I have to say, if there was a message that was going to come through from Anne Boleyn, absolutely rinsing someone's interior decorating, I do actually think she would say it. That's Um, such a great way of getting your own opinions over, but imbuing them with authority. The ghost (laughs) says your cooking is bad. (laughs) Anne Boleyn says she hates that armchair, so... (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, but there were a lot, there were a lot of... um, these seances that happened in the Victorian period, one of the chapters I look at is one of the people who lived there when it was a sort of retirement home in the Victorian period. And it was this extraordinary 19th century scientist and mathematician called Michael Faraday, 
And for both from his scientific perspective and from the perspective of being a very devout Christian, Faraday really struggled and objected to the rising tide of spiritualism that was happening in Victorian society and amongst his fellow residents at Hampton Court. There was another fabulous, <laughs> fabulous story of a, of a snobby spiritualist. And to your point, Charles, she didn't like her apartments that she was given under this scheme. So she contacted the royal household and said, I have to move, they're haunted. She said there were two ghosts. And eventually, when they were doing some excavations and installing new pipes near her apartment, they did find two skeletons there. And it turned out they were the skeletons of two workmen who had died during refurbishments to the palace about 150 years earlier. And this lady was about to prove vindicated. You know, here were the, here were two corpses nearby. Unfortunately, when she found out they were workmen, she point blank refused to believe that they had been haunting her because she certainly had not been communicating with workmen dead or alive. She thought that they might be noblemen from the Civil War period of the 1640s. <laughs> and, she, and she she kept she kept petitioning the royal household to move her because of the the, the unquiet dead. And the, the Chamberlain for Queen Victoria had to write back and say, you know, Her Majesty's officials have much under their control. The domestic tribulations of the unquiet dead are not amongst them, and she had to stay put <laughs> in the room. So, there, yeah, there was a great deal of, of seancing going around. And I've, I've recorded interviews in the Haunted Gallery at nighttime, which was an incredible experience. It's very atmospheric. And I think if you leaned towards that, you certainly could convince yourself that Hampton Court was a place full of more than just the memory of history. And certainly there are, there are many people who, who believe in it much more strongly than I do, ghosts, than they do feel things there. But it's, as you know, it's, it's hard to sort of pinpoint where the stories become self-fulfilling with things like that. It's, it's tricky. All right. So back on terra firma, sure, at the sure, beginning sure. of the 17th century... We have some remarkable historical moments at Hampton Court Palace. Shakespeare's King's Men first perform both Macbeth and Hamlet there. How'd that happen? I'm glad you brought it up because, to be honest, as much as I've cut my teeth in the Tudors before with some previous books, I loved the Stuart section. I loved the 17th century stuff in this. So it, the Stuarts are the Scottish royal family. And when Elizabeth I of England dies with no children... They succeed to the throne, and that's sort of the, the, the major building block for Britain eventually becoming legislatively Great Britain several years later. But King James I and his Danish wife, Queen Anna, decide to spend their first Christmas as King and Queen of England at Hampton Court. And Anna, in particular, is a keen enthusiast of the arts, particularly theatre. And the 12 days of Christmas that run from Christmas Day through to the Feast of the Epiphany on the 6th of January is a period of really quite raucous celebrations that I describe in Chapter 11, I think. And they decide to have a play every night. And this is great news for young Master Shakespeare, who has done okay under Elizabeth I, but really hopes to do a lot better under the new regime. And he, he certainly makes sure to tailor the content to please the new royals. You know, she's Danish. All of a sudden, there's a play about a Danish prince called Hamlet. And Wait, so he tailored that to yeah, this commission? He, he, so, for instance, he, um, yeah, he, James and Anna had spent their honeymoon at Helsingor, which is Elsinore, 
and she entertained herself, the Danish royal family, at, El- at Helsingor, excuse me, their, their big thing was itinerant troops of actors. So there's so much woven in to Hamlet to please Queen Anna. He also then really eggs up, Macbeth is basically, is very clearly curated for the Stuarts. It's about the Scottish monarchy. James I writes anti-witchcraft textbooks or manuals for witch hunters. So you see the impacts of witches tormenting a Scottish king, which he was convinced had happened to him. He's a direct ancestor of Banquo and Malcolm, who are two of the heroes of the play. And Macbeth also is his shortest tragedy. Unfortunately, it still was too long for Queen Anna's visiting, very hard-drinking brother, King Christian IV of Denmark, who, while watching an early performance of Macbeth in Hampton Court's Great Hall, got so stinkingly drunk he fell off his throne halfway through the third act and had to be carried out. So it, it was... um it was a triumph and farce for Shakespeare, but really a lot of the plays that he he puts on at Hampton Court for the court and the servants at that Christmas are what helped launch his career into a very prominent position in English society. And, it, and he keeps a close tie to the court, which financially and socially is a godsend to him. And then a few years later, we get more great writing, some of it to please the king with the King James Bible, the only great book ever written by committee. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that, yeah, that's a great line. I might be stealing it. Yes. So James I is a fascinating figure. He is a sort of a kaleidoscope of very contradictory traits. He is energetically bisexual. He is intellectually astonishing. He is also petty, he could drink anyone under the table, including himself, increasingly. He loved parties. He was sort of financially bulimic. He's extraordinary and not always in the best way imaginable. But one of his great passions was theology and languages. And when he arrives as the new King of England, the Church of England is sort of creaking and groaning under internal pressure. I mean, it was a very moving moment to think of it in a way. But when he arrives, there are two wings of the Church of England that probably are kind of still there. Uh, the, the Puritan or Low Church wing and the Episcopalian or High Church wing, and they are tearing each other apart, and they both have two slightly different translations of the Bible. And they petition the king to provide one that will be used as the authorised version for Anglican worship. And James calls a great council sort of Nicaea on Thames, really. He calls a great council of all the best theologians and linguistic scholars to Hampton Court and entrusts them with the task of creating as close to perfect as is possible a translation into English of of the scriptures. And researching this, Charles, to me was fascinating because you don't often think of the sheer amount of work that goes into things like this. So they divide them up into six committees, two at Oxford, two at Cambridge, two at Westminster. Then the Bible is itself divided into six sections. Each committee gets a different section of books. And they work for the biblical sounding tally of seven years on perfecting this. And I do acknowledge there are there are politics of the 1600s that creep into some of the things, that they how they translate certain words. But broadly speaking, I actually came away less cynical and more impressed by what they had done, the level of work, 
the attention to detail. And these were very pious men. They were, you know, they were very learned, but incredibly devout. And it was not just an exercise in intellectual acrobatics for them. It was spiritual. It was a calling. They had been picked and they took it with such gravitas. And so I, I, that chapter looks at what it was like for one of the theologians to go there and then what they produced. And I said in the author's note, and at the end of the chapter, you know, the King James Bible was the last thing I read to my father before he passed away. It seemed read at my christening. You know, if you, I, there's very few people who've been brought up in Christian families who cannot say that the King, that book that was embarked upon at Hampton Court has not had some impact on their lives or has not at least been read at a moment of, of spiritual or emotional significance for them. So it, that was probably the chapter where I was so quietly awestruck by the history that's flowed in and out of Hampton Court. It is funny. We mentioned Shakespeare. I know there was for a while this conspiracy theory that Shakespeare had written it or helped write it because it's so good. Mm. But it is so good. It's remarkably beautiful. Forget the scholarship for a moment or yeah. the politics or lack thereof. Just an extraordinary work of art. Yeah, it's it's why, I mean, I put it in the footnotes, but it's why you have Richard Dawkins and Philip Pullman, who are very strident critics of organized religion, saying that they truly believe that the King James Bible should be taught in English literature classes Absolutely. in the United Kingdom. And I would agree with that. I'm not a strident critic of organized religion, but I, I think it's absolutely to their credit that they see the cultural merit of this. And you can certainly use it in religion classes or anything else like that, but there is a place for it in its, its literary role. Culturally, it's achingly beautiful sometimes. You see these phrases and it's remarkable. When you said there's a conspiracy theory about Shakespeare, I was like, <laughs> I'm sure there is. Um, yes. <laughs> there is. And it's actually, I'd forgotten that they said he wrote that book. I also, they that he wrote the Bible, but didn't write any of his own plays. Exactly. He was too busy writing the Bible to write his plays, which is why someone <laughs> yeah, else he had sort to of, do he, it. he just farmed the plays out to an assistant. <laughs> <laughs> so let's fast forward a little bit to George III, very famous in America. Yes. But he didn't live there. So we need to fill in this gap yeah. between King James I and then George III, who abandons the place. How do we get there? So there's a, there's a lot of, of politics and mistresses and chocolate that happens in the intervening period. But George III, who I'm sure most of your listeners will know, makes a career out of being the last kings in certain places. Uh, George III is the last monarch to live there. And he becomes king in 1760. And in 1761, he purchases Buckingham House, which becomes Buckingham Palace. Officially, it's a wedding gift to his wife, Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, but, but, but it is to establish a new residence in London. So I, um, I had this, uh, this was the Marie Antoinette let them eat cake moment, where you hear a historical anecdote and you just know it's nonsense, or you assume it's nonsense. And I had heard that the, the reason why George III abandoned Hampton Court when he became king and started moving out all the furniture and bits of art to decorate Buckingham House was because he had an unhappy childhood there. And I assumed that that would be proved bunkum in the course of the research, and it's not. It is actually, it's correct. So George III's grandfather was the universally tolerated George II, who had a ferociously foul temper and George II had a particularly bad relationship with George III's father Prince Frederick 
who died before his father. And after Frederick's death, the teenage Prince George passed to spend more time in his grandfather's household. And Hampton Court is the favourite home of King George II. He spends most of his summers there and part of the autumn as well. And as George II ages, his temper becomes more, not less, foul. And one afternoon, Prince George says something that annoys his grandfather, and his grandfather fell on him and apparently beat the living daylights out of him. Bear in mind, it was a more corporal, punishing, tolerating society, Charles. I mean, you'll you know this. They were more comfortable with sort of slaps and hits and things like that. So for it to stand out as shocking, it, it does probably have to have been very violent. And George III had just loathed Hampton Court from that point onwards. And, and we're lucky we know this because it was confirmed in a conversation by later one of George III's sons, Prince Augustus, the Duke of Sussex, who said it, he was at Hampton Court. And he said it's one of these rooms. He couldn't remember which one where George II had, had attacked his father. So George III quits Hampton Court, and it's to his credit. I mean, George III was uh, very conscientious about history and conservation and sort of about the national past. And he, as much as he didn't like Hampton Court, he could see its historical significance. So he doesn't want it to go to rack and ruin. And he comes up with various plans to make sure this building doesn't fall into decay. I mean, as you know, unoccupied buildings, the damp will get them before anything else does. So he starts by opening the gardens to the public for the first time. And the palace itself, he subdivides into these compartments, these apartments we were talking about earlier. And it is, ironically, the French Revolution that helps save Hampton Court. The French Revolution does not have an international reputation for saving palaces. But it, as the revolutionary army sweeps through Europe, it flushes out a lot of royals, minor royals predominantly, who flee to Britain, where they're granted asylum by the British royal family. And the Dutch royal, the Dutch princely family are given rooms at Hampton Court, and that expands this residential programme. So under George III, all the old private apartments become residences for revolution-fleeing royalty, or for widowed aristocrats, bishops' widows, or servants who maybe didn't have a lot of money to live elsewhere. And that keeps the lights on, in a sense. It keeps fireplaces going in these rooms. You basically get a room at Hampton Court from the monarchy. It's called the Grace and Favour System. And the deal is you will pay little or no rent to live in this room in a palace, but you have to provide the upkeep for your room. And it proves to be a quite, quite genius, actually, way to maintain the palace. And then in the reign of his granddaughter, Queen Victoria... They see the success that the French royal family have had in turning Versailles into a museum after the restoration of the monarchy. And so Queen Victoria opens up the interior, the sort of the, the big staterooms, like the Great Hall and the kitchens, and the, the old throne rooms to the public as part of the tours that you could go on. So throughout the 19th century, it is both the most singularly popular tourist attraction in the British Isles, and it's also still in its private quarters, a glorified retirement home for Blue Bloods. And that's its 19th century history. So there's sort of an Airbnb Hampton Court edition. Yeah, absolutely. It's Airbnb for HRHs. And you do have sort of wonderful stuff like the Dodge or Countess of Cavan is fighting with the Dodge or Duchess of Buckingham about whose servants get better seats in the pew for Sunday services. 
But also you do have, in the 19th century, one of the things that I think we tend to forget about it is, particularly in British and American life, the celebration of expertise. And in British national life, probably the most effective champion of that was Queen Victoria's German husband, Prince Albert. I'm not the biggest fan of Prince Albert, but I but I don't think he gets the credit for that. He picks, you know, brilliant scientists and mathematicians and sports stars and people who have contributed to national life, but who maybe aren't doing very well financially, or in the case of Michael Faraday, are suffering pretty severe mental health. The weight of genius is often madness. And he provides them with accommodation at Hampton Court. And if they can't afford the upkeep, he discreetly funnels money to them. So it really is, it's a, it's a wonderfully eccentric little compound in the 1860s and 1870s. Luther, I'm in the middle of an interview here and you've broken the window. And oh. Yes, I know that. And you can get back to your interview in a moment, but you need to read another ad. Ah, yes, another ad. Well, true. Our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute are back with new episodes of their breakout How the World Works podcast, hosted by author and political commentator Kevin Williamson. If you're not already listening to the show, you should be, because each episode Kevin sits down with notable guests for candid conversations about the jobs they've had and the role of work in the economy and our social lives. From flipping burgers and tending pigs on a farm to leading special ops missions in far corners of the globe, some of America's best thinkers discuss the jobs they've had that informed their outlook on life and future careers. In a recent episode, Kevin sat down with Jonah Goldberg, another old friend of National Review and mine, for a fascinating conversation about the ins and outs of Jonah's decades-long career in the media. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts, or visit cei.org forward slash how the world works. And now it's back to Gareth Russell. Why did you mention chocolate? Because I, I'm off it for Lent. No, um, and it's bubbling in the front of my mind. No, the reason why I mentioned chocolate is one of the figures I write about is a lady called Grace Tozier, who was wife of His Majesty's chocolatier. And in the Georgian period, chocolate really takes off. And they build specific chocolate kitchens at Hampton Court that were rediscovered in 2013. They thought they were cupboards, and then they they found the original plans. And they've restored them. And they were separate from the rest of the kitchens. It was a very elite job. You made the king's chocolate. And finding some of the recipes that they used to make actually made me feel a bit sick, to be honest. I think the idea of aniseed and chocolate as a drink just sounds like it would be a punishment rather than a treat. But it was a huge thing, and chocolate was so expensive that they guarded it like the finest of champagne. And Grace was... Grace had hustle, I would say. You know, she opened her own chocolate coffee shop, chocolate and coffee shop in London, and she would very much advertise that her husband worked for the royal family. And then she would host balls and parties at her chocolate shop with all her merchandise and prominent display for any of the royal family's birthdays or weddings or anniversaries. And and essentially, the people that she would send invitations to were the people who really wanted to be invited to the palace, but didn't quite make the cut. 
and then she'd make a fortune flogging, you know, selling these things at the parties that she hosted. So chocolate is a is a big way to make an awful lot of money if you have the right connections, and Hampton Court helps popularize it. All right, I have to ask you this. This is not directly related to Hampton Court, but in your book, yeah. you discuss Mary the First. Yes. Bloody Mary. Yes, yes, yes. Now objectively the worst drink to have after a hangover and also allegedly <laughs> one of our worst sovereigns that's the that's the that's the name yeah but i want to get in on this allegedly word because i sensed a certain revisionism gareth in your yeah. discussion of mary the first now a, a few weeks ago on this podcast i had andrew robert the historian yes and i got a full court press revisionist account of napoleon who i want to hate i thought we were going to give you a full a full revision of george the third well, true, true, true. But I don't want, I don't, I'm indifferent towards him. But I want to hate Napoleon. So this was unwelcome, albeit persuasive. Mary the First is another person. I want to hate Mary the First, but you kind of seemed as if you were trying to revive her a little bit. That is kind of you, actually, to say. The reason being that within Shooter historiography, Mary the First, Bloody Mary, has had, Charles, you'll know this. Do you know why you can't call it the Dark Ages anymore? Because early medievalists have a little aneurysm when you do. <laughs> if you call her Bloody Mary around about 90% of Tudor historians, they will either die or kill you. One way, there'll be, there'll be a corpse on the floor one way or the other. There has been a massive attempt to rehabilitate her and to point out that she was immensely hardworking, which is true that her persecution of the Protestants paled in comparison to what was being done in the rest of mainland Europe, which is not true, and that she actually had significant successes in, in her rule as the first crowned female head of state in England, which is true. So I tried to factor that in to the chapter on, on her stay at Hampton Court in 1555. There certainly were things about Mary I that I came away reluctantly impressed by. And part of the reason why I say reluctantly impressed is I do think the revisionism on her has swung so far in the opposite direction that if you ever try to criticise her at all, you're sort of accused of being the stooge of Protestant propaganda. It's like criticising Richard III. They, they'll say, oh, you, you just swallowed sugar propaganda. And you're like, They've been dead since 1603. They're not producing propaganda anymore. <laughs> But the reason why I put it in is, yes, I was reluctantly impressed by some of the things she did. I think her work ethic was extraordinary. I think her courage was utterly remarkable. And I'd never really given her credit for that before, nor for her charisma. But I wanted to include that to say, you can accept some of the revisionist arguments about her. And, you know, we don't have to think of her as this Protestant incinerating monster. But... You can't take it so far to the extreme that you just ignore the 283 people she burned in four years. And I did try to make a case for why I think she turned on Protestantism with the venom that she did. And I do think part of it was after a rebellion in 1554. But I really did want to say, look, here are some great points. Here are some very admirable traits that she had. Yes, it was the 16th century. Things were done differently then. However... I did also include the account of the first burning. Just to remind people that when you are rehabilitating monarchs or any political leader, you can't forget the impact that some of their decisions had. So, so the revisionist historians on Mary think I was very harsh on her. 
because I pointed out that burning people hurts. You have an anti-burning people bias. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I mean, I'm just a student. Yeah. <laughs> I, and you think it's, they, they, can, they can't seem to, some of them, some of them, some of them, some of the revisionist scholarship is extraordinary. There are only a few I'm talking about here, but some of them have sort of said, you know, like, why were the Protestants so angry? It's just propaganda. I'm like, no, no, this is the testimony of people who saw their loved ones burnt in front of them. They're allowed to be angry. So yeah, I think I was trying to put her back in her context. I don't think she was anywhere near the disaster for the country that her father was. I think he gets off very lightly. I think her brother was also was a religious extremist as well, in a way that her younger sister Elizabeth I wasn't. Although, of course, Elizabeth later turns on Catholics, partly because the Pope is encouraging a lot of people to assassinate her. But yes, I think it was, it was an interesting angle to take and to look at her in that window. Um, I liked her more at the end of doing the research than I had going into it. I just wasn't as convinced that she was totally on the side of the angels at all moments in her life, as, as some other people would think. All right, last question. Many listeners to this podcast have or will visit England. Yep. Or live in England. If they went to Hampton Court Palace today, yes. what would they see? And if the answer is a long one... What should they focus on out of all of the options? What should they see? Great question. I always say start with the kitchens. First of all, they're quite close to the entrance gate, so it's easily done. And the reason for that is that they're the oldest surviving rooms. So most of the kitchens survive from 1495, and they're still working fireplaces in them. There's a and soot on the wall from centuries. It's so atmospheric. And the staff do on cold days light the fires. I also would really encourage you, the, the Great Hall is, it takes your breath away. It is remarkable. If you're someone who wants to beat the crowds, I would do the Tudor Wing last, if you can. Head to the Baroque Wing and see the, um, the Baroque and Georgian Wing. I think the throne rooms and the private apartments of the Georgian royals are really, really something. There's a dining room that hardly anyone ever goes to, which was William III's private dining room, and it, it's really special. So. The kitchens, the Great Hall, chapel's also worth a visit, and the private rooms in the Baroque Wing are the four areas that I personally love, but there's not really a dud spot to, to rest your eyes. And also, make a day of it. Uh, there's a great cafe there, You can there's a play park for kids, there's a lot you can do, sort of a, a full day's trip there. When I took a friend, you'll appreciate this, Charles, because you have, you were patient zero in this aspect of my life, but we, um, I took a friend there, and I said, oh, you know, over there, there's the Mitre pub. It's been there since the reign of Charles II. And Paul said, what's it like? I said, oh, I've never been there. And he sort of paused and he said, your, your only two loves in life are palaces and drinking. How have, you not, <laughs> how have you not gone from palace to pub? And I did feel as if I'd matured and let myself down. And it will not be happening again. I love it. So everyone who goes to Hampton Court should also go there. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a good spot for a, for, a, for a pint of ale or a gin and tonic or whatever your tipple is if you're a drinker. And the book is called, its full title? The Palace, From the Tudors to the Windsors, 500 Years of British History at Hampton Court. Which people can buy anywhere, Amazon. Yeah, Amazon absolutely. Level. It's in all, all good bookstores and it's available in hardback, ebook and audio. All right, Gareth Russell, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Charles. 
And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Gareth Russell. Thank you to my sponsors. Thank you to the 24 hour glaziers who came out to fix the window that Luther broke. Next week, we're going to talk about God. We'll see you then.